everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. We spend all this time thinking about God as a parent, but in my experience as a parent, I think God loves much more like my three or four-year-olds have than the way that I do, because they love with abandon, and they love with recklessness, and they love with a level of grace that I aspire to. My guest today is the Reverend Abby King Kaiser. Abby is an artist and pastor. She leads Common Ground at Xavier University in Cincinnati, where she also directs the Dorothy Day Center for Faith and Justice. A few years ago, her work with university members and recent grads led to the gathering of friends and colleagues on Sunday mornings for Churchish, which we'll hear more about today. Thank you so much for being here, Abby. It's so fun to get to have this conversation. Yes, yes. So you are the leader of an emerging Protestant worshiping community located at Xavier, which is a Jesuit Catholic university of about 4,000 students. What is that like for you? <laughs> um it's funny because, you know, on one day when I started this job, I was surrounded by all Presbyterians going to Presbyterian meetings and serving a Presbyterian church. And on the next day, it was like I didn't know any Presbyterians. Um, and all of my colleagues were uh, largely Catholic. There aren't as many priests around as there used to be. But I have found the Jesuit spirituality and charism to be a place that I've been personally formed, but that has also had a big impact on my ministry. Hmm. You don't hear the word charism a lot in our, in the Presbyterian circle, right? No, it's funny. There are words like that I had to, to pick up. It was a little bit like learning a new language. I think the one that was most confusing was the way they would use liturgy and they would toss it around and it meant some specific things about mass. And I'm thinking oh. about having written liturgies about baptisms or having written liturgies for communion or writing liturgies for the closing of a church or, you know, that there was this sort of creative way I thought about it as somebody who likes to craft worship. And that was not at all the way that the Catholics use the word. Um yeah. And charism's a funny one, I think, because I I love the way it describes particular gifts that the Catholic Church can understand itself as a whole, but that within the church people have particular gifts or parts of the church have particular gifts. And charism can sort of embody that while still being a part of that whole. And I think that's something that us Protestants often miss out on because we see our particularity as a part of a very specific tradition without being able to see that larger whole and mm -hmm. how we can offer that particularity to the unity and growth of the whole church. That's that's an interesting point. Um, you know, it makes me think also that you're in this particular context of people who are experiencing life as college students. There may be um, in their early 20s or not even quite in their 20s yet. I mean, do you feel like there's a charism to the campus worshiping community? I love the way working with college students challenges me to keep a critical lens and some depth to my own faith. A student recently summed it up with saying, um, as somebody who is both becoming who she is in college as a queer person, but also as a Christian, she had mm -hmm. found a space on our campus to be both that was safe but she was still searching for a critical space to examine both. 
What I love about our students is that in so many ways, whether it's their identity, whether it's their past experiences, whether it's in relationship to their vocation, they are looking for that both space of Mm -hmm. a safe place to be who they are and be loved by God, but also a critical space to do some serious self-examination and reflection so that they really do truly grow in their faith and who they want to be for the world. That is what I hope is true in all of our churches. But I think sort of like you said, that charism of being in your um, sort of emerging adulthood is a space where it just happens in a more particular um, and exciting and outward way. What is that? Could you walk us through what that kind of safe and critical space looks like throughout the school year? Do you guys... Um, do you set up things intentionally for that to happen? Yeah, I think it's a really difficult tension. And each and every academic year, I feel like it's been a little different. We live in some ways on a different liturgical calendar. And I think that has a lot to do with how to set up the community space. Um, instead of being able to set our clocks by ordinary time and Pentecost and World Communion Sunday and even Advent, we have to set our hearts by orientation and um, academic breaks here and there and finals week and midterms. Advent every year kicks off just as the whole campus is getting tense. (laughs) Mm. And we're not around to celebrate Christmas together. So that poses a particular liturgical problem, but also a challenge in terms of the arc of the community. Because what the community needs to be for each other is very different in those last two weeks of the semester than they are in the first two weeks of the semester. Um, I love Advent, and I want it to be a space where we can challenge the ways we think about God through the concept of Emmanuel and God being with us and all these deeply theological things. But when I'm honest with myself as a pastor, that is the last thing our students need the last two weeks of the semester. Like, (laughs) just not the time for the like deep, hard questions. And so... So what do, what do they need this time of year when they're gearing yeah, up? Yeah, you know, the they need those reminders of sort of identity in God and identity in Jesus in that sort of really messy sense of incarnation, I think, does then become helpful. Um, that the peace that was offered in the manger isn't a peace that was quiet, but that was a peace that involved poop and smelliness <laughs> and um, diapers and crying. I mean, you know, and that all of those things somehow can still be described as being a part of the peace of God. Mm-hmm. Because when they look at their lives, you know, it's the stress and the relationships that are strained and the tension of being at home here and at home somewhere else or not being at home in either place. Uh, that they need to look for that same piece of God in amidst the mess or the darkness or the loudness or the stress. Uh, So Advent, I actually think in some ways does become then a really beautiful moment in the liturgical year in the way it lines up with our academic year. But I find um, in the long course of the year, we have to do some intentional spaces of community building and dialogue early on where folks just feel like they can be here, that people are going to love them, that people are going to keep asking after them, that people are going to take care of them uh, with moments of deeper reflection in October and November, in February and March, in those sort of in-between times in the semester when 
their studies are deepening, their reflection is deepening, they're really feeling rooted here in this small physical space of a college campus um, where we can provide that critical space because they're already safe. And I think that's part of the challenge is in many ways, the safe and the comforting space has to come first as they transition to living on a college campus, as they leave home, as they leave other spaces that might have felt safe in their lives. Um, but if we stay in the safe space, then we end up with what a colleague called hot tub Jesus, where it's just like, <laughs> we're going to come and get comfortable <laughs> and everybody's going to be relaxed and it'll be great. But we miss a lot of who God calls us to be if we stay in that place too. So when you think about that safe space, you create it within the new worshiping community, which is called Common Ground at Xavier. Um, what kinds of how do you set that up? How do you set that up in the beginning? Um, and how do you use the students themselves as leaders to enable that space to come about? Yeah, that's a really good way to ask that question, Sarah, because I think when I sit in the back of the room during a worship service, sometimes I don't have to get up front until either communion or the benediction, um, which is a really interesting dynamic. And I think is part of what creates that space. I think some of the safety comes from students who preach. And especially in the fall semester, it's almost always seniors. And they start to enter this reflective headspace about their own experience, but also about the way they can lead and care for the younger students that I think can help those who are struggling to either transition to college in their very first year or those who are in this space we tend to call the sophomore slump or those who are trying to figure out why their major just still feels like it doesn't fit. They can look at some of the seniors and hear about their own ex those students' experiences and see their own experiences reflected there and see the search for God amidst it all. And that can create that kind of safe space, even if those two students maybe never have a direct conversation. Mm. But maybe even more important than that, I think, are the ways that our leadership team uh, is in intentionally invited to be ministers to the other students on campus. So some of that is in direct ways on a Sunday night, like you're going to be a greeter and you're going to hand out a bulletin, but you're also going to make sure they know where tea is or hot chocolate is. Or if you're not greeting and you don't have a job, your job is to look around the room. And if somebody's sitting by themselves, go sit with them and make sure if they're by themselves, that that's the space they want to be in. And if it feels like it's not, that you're going to be their buddy. Um, some of it comes through our older students doing one-on-one -on -one conversations and coffee dates and time with younger students. Uh, that has been an important community builder, but also has shown a lot of fruit in our Sunday night space where we all gather because then those younger students come and they know a person and they feel like someone cares about them. And that dynamic is one that can't happen from just a leader. It has to happen from the community itself. And so though I think that's particularly important on a college campus where there are these extra dynamics of leaving home and transitioning and the challenges that they experience as college students, that is one that I have found to, 
to now be something I look for in places where I want to worship, that I don't want to just see a pastor up front. I want to hear from the community. I want to hear people pray for each other. I want to know what's going on in the life of the community from the community itself and not just from a leader who's up front. And I think that's something that can build a truly dynamic, faithful community where we really understand God in each other and in each other's perspectives and theologies and faiths in a way that for me is also at the heart of why I'm Presbyterian. Well, that's an interesting segue as you talk about wanting, you see this embodied at common ground, and then you start to have the expectation. This is what I would like for myself when I uh, am a part of a church and part of a worshiping community. So about, is it about a year ago that you um, a little more than that. We've just crossed the two-year mark. Yeah, time flies. <laughs> yeah, time does fly. So you um, have actually been pursuing that community yourself outside of Xavier, um, and you call it churchish. Absolutely. So I think a little more background on me. I got to seminary unsure of whether or not I wanted to be Presbyterian. I'd grown up in just one church, one congregation in Cincinnati. But I had a really dynamic campus ministry experience. It was an ecumenical organization that was near the big public university I went to. It was progressive. It was had a lot of service involved in it. Um, but it was also a small community. And so there was a lot of the way that we worked that felt dialogical. It didn't feel like we had a pastor who was telling us stuff. It felt like we had somebody who was walking along with us. When I got to seminary, I ended up doing an internship at a new church development in San Francisco called Mission Bay Community Church. And it was the first place where I saw preachers actually ask questions and lead discussion. And for me, both as somebody who sat in the pews, but then also as somebody who was eventually up front, that was a game changer. Um, It felt much more in line with my sort of approach to the world and my values and my understanding of who God was. It also felt much more in line with my own sort of pedagogical experiences as a student, but also as a teacher. And so I just found myself thriving in those places where a sermon didn't have to be a monologue. A sermon could be a dialogue or it could be a community conversation. So even in some of the spaces I occupied in a very traditional church in my first call, I found ways to do that. And coming back um, to Cincinnati, to my hometown, I really ached for that space in a lot of ways. I got to lead it at Common Ground, and I got to encourage that among the students. But then I would try to go to church on Sunday mornings with my families and just find spaces where we weren't in conversation. And where I wanted to be in conversation with my kids, I wanted to be in conversation with the pastor, I wanted to be in conversation with the people next to me in the pews. And that just wasn't a part of how worship was structured. So I was sort of, as you said, really thirsty for that personally. Um, so I really found a rich place where, especially as somebody in formation to be a preacher, where the preacher didn't have to give a monologue, where a homily could be a conversation, where a sermon could be dialogical or even include more than two perspectives. And so that was modeled at Mission Bay in Bruce's style, in the style of the other pastors in a variety of ways. There wasn't even just one way that that happened. And that opened up a space for me to be creative about what worship could look like, but it also gave me this thirst for the way I experienced the spirit of God in those spaces. And so when I came back to more traditional churches, 
being in Cincinnati and leading worship with students on Sunday nights, that meant that on Sunday mornings, I was looking for a place where my family could grow in their our sense of community in the city again, in nurturing our children as a part of the faith. But I found myself really wanting that same kind of conversation in worship, both with my kids, but also with the people in the pews next to me and with the pastor. Around the same time, I kept having conversations with friends and colleagues that sounded very repetitive, (laughs) oddly. It was like I would have the same conversation with five or six different people over the course of a couple of months, which centered around a few themes. One was finding worship spaces that we felt like enlivened our spirit and were creative or were allowed for or that allowed for us to sing well or enjoy some creative parts of worship but where we didn't quite feel like our faith lined up with a theology of the community or that we could find communities where we loved the theology and we loved who they were trying to be in the world but we would go to a worship space with that community and just couldn't find the same spirit in that space, whether it was style of worship or some of the dynamics I talked about with preaching. And this was um, just before the 2016 election too. And I think this city became increasingly divided around political lines in a way that had made it harder and harder for some folks to be in communities where they didn't feel like they aligned with the larger values of that community. And so having gone through discernment through new worshiping communities, having done Common Ground, having worked at Mission Bay, uh, my first thought was, well, if there are five or six of us, why don't we just start gathering, right? Like we don't need anything other than each other and um, a table in order to create worship. And so based on busy lives, based on schedules, based on other things, we sort of settled on once a month and churches emerged as sort of the the title, so to speak, because that was the best description as we were talking through what we each wanted and what we would like to get out of a space. That was the best description of what we were looking for. Some of us were in desperate need of community. Others were in desperate need of reflection. Others were des- in desperate need of a place to experience and provide hospitality. I was really looking for a wider village to raise my kids as a part of our tradition um, as well, where they just wouldn't just go to Sunday school, but they would also know adults and they adults would have these conversations with them and appreciate um, their messy presence in worship. Mm. And so churchish emerged out of, I would say that need in my spirituality and my faith, but also seeing that need in a very similar need in the spirituality and faiths of some of the folks around me too. So you have, as you mentioned, you have young children, um, and I'm wondering they've been they've been a part of some of the activities in the community at Common Ground. They've been a part of churchish, and also as you guys have visited and been a part of communities in Cincinnati and beyond, they've seen all kinds of the wide spectrum of, yes. of ecclesiology. <laughs> let's say so. What what do they think? about church. So Ellie is, is she eight years old? She's eight and in second grade and Beckett is four and still in preschool. Okay. So, and they're both kind of funny. Yeah. Because they've also attended preschool on campus. And so for a long time, they also had to be taught that they didn't go to college 
because <laughs> they would occasionally come to events with me or basketball games or common ground. And they would just sort of look at me like, but I'm a Xavier student. Like, I mean, yes, but like not the same way. Um, I love that. So it's actually been fun to sort of look through their eyes at what uh, church and God and faith and even people in community can be like, because I think it has also reframed it for me. I think mostly about a moment Beckett's preschool class does an international peace day celebration and they come over to the student center and they have sing some peace songs. It's ridiculously adorable. They read some big statements from the UN and places like that. And the college students sort of stop and get confused and look at all these short people doing things. Um, But on that day this year, I work in the building that they come over and sing in front of. And so I just come out of my office and come down to the event. And when Beckett saw me, he came running up and gave me the best greeting maybe he's ever given me. And he is my affectionate kid. Um, He's very outwardly affectionate. And the thought I had was we spend all this time thinking about God as a parent But in my experience as a parent, I think God loves much more like my three or four-year-olds have than the way that I do because they love with abandon and they love with recklessness and they love with a level of grace that I aspire to that I feel like the world has almost taught me not to respond to. And they just do it. It's just a part of who they are. Um, So part of what I love about having them in a space like churchish is they're constantly begging for communion to start. That was never my approach to communion. I learned to love communion as an adult when it um, became a freer space. It wasn't a thing that was relegated to certain Sundays or that you had to sort of like almost pass tests to have access to. I loved it when I got to share it um, as a part of service groups or on a beach for a seminary trip or things like that, where it became a part of the life I led. And for my, for my kids, like it just is like, they might be distracted at some point in the adult conversation and go off to play or go off to color or do their thing. But as soon as they start to get the clue that we're wrapping up and the bread is coming out and the juice is coming out, they are like standing next to the grownups ready to pass the cup and the juice. And there's a part of me that wonders if it's just because they like the bread we use and they think grape juice is yummy. And there's a part of me that doesn't think it matters because if the table is a place where I can find the kind of grace that they show me, then I hope it continues to be a place where they see that grace from God in and out of different seasons of their life. I love that image of the two of them joining you guys around the table and just that hunger and excitement. you were talking about the abandon, the reckless faith, the reckless graciousness that um, a preschool age child would would demonstrate and how that relates to your image of God. Um, are there ways that we as adults in the church can reposition ourselves toward that? Or do you see that happening at churchish where um, the space that's set, the the way that church is framed, um, the intention behind it can enable us to be more reckless um, with our love for each other and for God. 
Absolutely. It's funny because uh, Common Ground just last night had its end of semester service and it's a big Christmas thing. And there were a few different choirs and some of them, the choirs are very formal and some of the music is less formal. And I think a strength has been that some of the Common Ground students will offer music to each other, even if they don't feel like they're that great at it. And it's a very loving community. So if somebody's doing a solo and it doesn't quite work out, like they get encouragement. So this week I went to the gospel choir rehearsal. They sing with us about once a month at Common Ground and they had, they were doing some Christmas songs for last night. And I have all these hangups about performing music in front of people. I was a part of orchestra when I was a kid. I played piano, but my last piano recital went horribly, like really horribly. And a friend had invited some other people from our high school. And one of them was like the chair of our orchestra. He was the first violin. He's gone on to become a concert violinist and music professor. And so I was hugely intimidated by having him in the audience. And I could not remember for the life of me, the rest of my piece, I like, like couldn't finish the song. Right. And then I quit piano. So I find music to be this place where it's really hard to get over a lot of the internal demons of trying to be perfect, of trying to do things right, of trying to meet expectations that might be impossible, when the heart of music, especially in worship, is to connect with each other and to connect with God. And those two things can often be at odds. And so it's really been the students who've taught me and showed me how to do that differently. And even they've invited me into a space sometimes to do it differently as an individual. And that has been really fun to also take into the churchish space in a variety of ways that maybe we'll make art together. But if we can remind ourselves that it's not about being an artist, but about engaging a creative process so that we can engage our faith, we can engage the spirit of God, we can engage who we want to be in the world, then we can get over some of those internal demons to meet each other and meet God in this space that might be surprising. With music, I find it again and again that people have these expectations of how it should be. And sometimes worship just isn't going to be that. And there can be this real tension then and how to resolve that, even in traditional spaces where we love our traditions and we find deep comfort and sometimes growth in other things, not even comfort, but so much more than that in those spaces that are a certain way for good reasons. And that if we also use those spaces to battle those demons and to wrestle with some of the messiness and the abandon of who God wants us to be in community, that we might take our communities to places in our relationships with God that we might have never thought possible. So you talk about um, the demons themselves. Do you have... Um... Do you have fears that you associate with churches or starting this new community that includes people very close to you? Or is it like been totally freeing or the things that you oh, no, not totally worry about? Okay. <laughs> it's, it's funny because on the one hand, starting something with the students felt so much easier because on some level they had to do it. And yeah. so there were things I could do, but in the end, like, I'm not the one showing up. I'm not trying to get my friends to show up in a way that churches feels much more, maybe personal is the right word, where every month 
without fail, I have that, oh my God, no one's going to show up moment in a way that like, I just don't have when we're on campus. Sometimes no one shows up on campus, but it's much easier to be like, meh, that's how it goes. In a way that when uh, it's with the people who are sort of my people outside of work, my people in other ways, it can be hard to know. Mm-hmm. Um, we hosted at our house this last time we've started to host in homes and someone else did the reflection. I wasn't in charge of any of the sort of liturgical pieces in a lot of ways, which was freeing. But then because it was my house, then there was this different kind of anxiety about like, are we going to have enough chairs? What about the coffee? Like how can all of these things work in a way that wasn't different than that sort of battle I was talking about around the demons with music, right? It's the same kinds of demons that come back up around, what if people won't like me? What if this isn't the right space? What if I'm doing something wrong that's not making people feel welcome? What if I'm not explicit enough about this concern or that concern? Or what if people's whole identities don't feel like they can come to the table? You know, like fill in the blank. And there have been piles and piles of things that make me nervous. And somehow... And I attribute this in some ways to some of the gifts that get around the table. When we have a centering moment, we usually start with a centering moment at churchish. We say we start at 10, but we really start filing into wherever we're going at 10. And so something that vaguely looks like liturgy might start at 1015 or 1020 or 1035, kind of whenever it feels like people are ready. <laughs> it's yeah. based on the vibe in the room. And we have a couple of folks who are really good at bringing calm and bringing non-anxious presence and bringing uh, pastoral feel. And so one of them will offer a short reflection or a question or a breathing exercise or some stretching. And when I can give myself over to the spirit of God in them, and when I can give myself over to being led by them into that space, I find that a lot of those anxieties disappear and do so in a much more authentic way than I'm allowed to be in other spaces where I lead or where I show up. Because Mm -hmm. it is a space where I can bring those anxieties and be honest about them in a way that when I have to be the non-anxious pastoral presence for students, I can't always bring my own stuff. And so even though churchish is in the long run liberating for me, and I hope it's liberating for others, I've really found that that doesn't mean it's an easy process, that often it means it's a harder process to, if we're going to get to that sense of liberation and freedom, if we're going to get to that sense of resurrection, if we're going to get to that sense of being able to be who we are in community and in our lives, it's going to take the really uncomfortable, anxious, sometimes even depressed times um, and bringing that with us in order to let it be transformed by God's spirit and community. Yeah, I like that. I think sometimes we we want to just erase that or we have like a good worship service, a good experience is the absence of those feelings or of those tensions. But that's also sort of a false impression of our lives and our, our calling right. and the gospel is just to is to delete and edit those things out. Right. Um, but then the task is to do it in, in a way that moves us forward towards God and each other. Right. And that, that has its roots in grace and good news. Um, Mm -hmm. This last time we met for churchish in November, a young man named Izzo led. um, And Izzo is 
wanting to be a teacher and he works at an elementary school as an aide and is getting his master's in education because his undergrad was not in education. And um, he was the groom in our first sort of churchish big exciting thing. There was a churchish wedding in October. And so that was really fun. And so Izzo has been pretty central to the community the whole time. And he read a passage from Isaiah and had us listen to a couple of contemporary rap songs, also next to Stokely Carmichael or uh, Kwame Torre's Black Power Speech from Berkeley, um, which a lot of people are familiar with, whether they're familiar with um, him as Stokely or Kwame. And it was hard. It was a really hard conversation. The Isaiah passage is really hard. It was part of, part of where Isaiah is really calling out the people who are in power for being problematic and for oppressing people and for marginalizing people. And God is tired of the way that the people who are religious are perpetuating those injustices. And I had spent many parts of this semester in some really hard reflective spaces on my own work around the damage the church can do as a predominantly white institution that supports white supremacy, the damage the church can do in relationship to its queer children and how we perpetuate homophobia. And I, it's been a semester of wrestling um, and not always feeling satisfied with what I come up with, right? My own frustrations with not being able to uh, be in that finished place, that tension of being in the aspiring but not yet space that most of our lives of faith, I think, are. Um, and the challenge of Izzo's conversation he led, the challenge he really had us wrestle with, did so much more for me pastorally than a comforting sermon would have, mm -hmm. than, you know, a pat on the back and a, and a good job servant well done would have done. It was much more comforting in the long run to be reminded of the struggle that we're all in and to listen deeply to the words of others as they engage that struggle and to be able to have a space to be honest about both my feelings as a part of that struggle, my complicity as a part of that struggle, but also the questions and the just sort of space of like not knowing what to do. And um, I don't even think I've gotten a chance to tell Izzo that in that sort of way, but I'm really grateful for a space where that kind of leadership allows me as a pastor to also be pastored too. That's so important. We don't often uh, take that space when it's offered. You know, I, I admire you for that. And, um, you know, I wondered, I was thinking about some of the experiences you've had that have been woven into your communities and also this the Thousand One movement at large. Um, this sense of artistry and co-creation. You actually grew up, you're an artist. Um, I'd love to ask you about this. You grew up as a child of an artist. Just your mom taught art yeah. at an elementary yeah. school. Is that right? Yeah. She's an elementary art teacher and she's been a part of churches too, which has been really fun. Wow. So we've had art supplies in the house, you know, as long as I probably, before there were kids in the house, my mom had art supplies in the house. Um, and so I've been making things for my whole life, but I've also 
found personally that I love making things in community. I always loved being a team player, even though I was terrible at sports. I like joined up on soccer because like we were doing a thing as a group. And it's what I loved about orchestra when I was a kid was like, we're doing a thing as a group and we're going to make something beautiful. We can't make with one or two or four of us. It's going to take all 40 of us. Um, and that's been a tension in my artistic life that my, my, favorite kinds of projects are projects that are done in community and that's not an easy task and there aren't always experiences readily available to make that happen and yet worship then has been a place where I can bring those creative impulses and do something with a community that doesn't have to feel like art but can be deeply worshipful at the same time. And when people can let down their barriers, then there's a space for creativity where we can find and unearth the stories that we need to tell through using our hands or using our words or making music or whatever the medium might be that sometimes we can't find when we're just talking or sometimes we can't find when we're just traditionally engaging in liturgy. And so art has been a gift to my faith um, but also to a lot of the other ways that I live, it's just been an integral part of who I've been since I could sit up. <laughs> I love that. It's a gift you've given to your children as well. Yeah, it's really fun. Sometimes I think my mom's better at it as a grandparent. I look forward to doing art as a grandparent where you can like, she would strip them down when they could barely talk and just let them finger paint and not care if it was all messy in a way that like in my own house, I'd be like, I'm going to give you a washable marker. Yeah. <laughs> um, and constantly our kids art closet is a source of frustration for the grownups in the house because they're really into making art out of recycling. And so there are times that both of their rooms look like recycling bins, like giant recycling bins, because there's <laughs> cardboard and tape and paper and scissors and like it's just all in a pile. And you can't tell the difference between what is art to them and what is just the supplies for making art later. That's just really garbage, if we're honest. Um, <laughs> but is that a metaphor? <laughs> Probably. For the church or am I pushing it? Probably. <laughs> no, it might be. You know, and I think it's, I think it is easy to say like, these are the things and these are not the things, right? Like art yeah. is made with markers and um, colored pencils and it should involve paper or 2D and these things don't count. And in fact, it's been that coming in and out of the church with my art and those other spaces that don't just feel sort of segregated to the creative spaces in our lives that have helped me to see that art can be all of those things. And my children's own making then challenges me sort of, like you said, to see those metaphors in other spaces. Beckett's latest creation he loves is a chainsaw that also, it has some other function too, I can't remember, but it's a paper towel tube that he cut and sort of splayed out to what he thinks looks like a chainsaw and he attached a butter container to it. And that's the power source. And then there's a round thing. And so carry it around the house and pretend with it. And it's had to be taken away a couple times when he hasn't <laughs> listened. <laughs> um, and he'll make chainsaw noises, but like, I think it's as important to him that he made it and not that it, you know, looks exactly like a chainsaw. Yeah. He really takes pleasure and pride in the process. And so like I include tape in almost all of their presents, like at birthdays and Christmas, because they go through so much scotch tape. It's ridiculous. Um, 
And that's like not what I would have thought of as the best art material. If you had asked me when I was a new parent, I would have been like, yeah, I'm going to have to have piles of scotch tape in my house, but that's their thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it does help me to look around and see what, what is it that I think is too messy or too inadequate or too much not, you know, fill in the blank. Um, And maybe that's actually the space where God is working, right? Like maybe that's the space where God is doing something I don't understand. And the problem isn't with that thing itself, but with my understanding of it. I wanted to um, maybe close like coming back full circle to, um, to Xavier, the context there, common ground. Um, You actually uh, at the toward the end of graduation, towards graduation last May, you gave an address to the graduating seniors. Um, and it's the first group you had the whole four years of college. So you were with them the yeah. whole time during their college yeah. experience and saw them grow and um, shape also the gathering itself. You say, I remember our first worship service and my impressions of it. It felt like a disaster in some ways. We worshiped out in the yard. It was too windy and I thought candles were a good idea. They weren't. Papers flew around. I almost broke the communion wear, and four very brave students led music. We had too many chairs, and so the souls who showed up felt to me lost in the open green space of the yard. I really didn't think anyone who came to that service would ever come back. Telling stories about those moments in worship recently, and one of you said, it was bad with a laugh you backtracked and i followed up asking why you came back with all honesty and without self-consciousness you said because god yeah part of what has been a gift to me in this work and why i feel so privileged to do new church work and have been a part of even having been a part of new church work as a seminary intern is that sometimes that it's that simple Um, that it's a space where it's easier to see that the bottom line is because God, period. Mm -hmm. Um, I can get easily caught up and some of that might be my social context of having grown up as a high achiever with a family that was really community oriented where we were trying to do 25 things and be a part of, you know, a small tight knit suburban middle-class community Um, where it's easy for me to get caught up and in the middle of committees and to-do lists and goal setting and strategic planning and budgets that the because God period can get lost. And for me in new church work, it's always present at the surface. And when I can be reminded of that, I find my work is more rich. I can serve the church in more rich ways. I can be a better pastor and a better person and more of who God wants me to be because it's that simple. And it sounds reductionist and it sounds silly. And it's funny because like even talking about it, sometimes it's like, I like it, it doesn't feel like it should be that simple. It feels like it should be more complicated, but in the end, again and again, I think it's just not. Hmm. Thank you so much for being here, Abby. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun to get to talk 
about the work and to sort of do some reflection in a bigger way about the journey I've been on and the journey I've been on with the church. And it's always enriching for me to get to be in conversation about this movement within our denomination because it is a rich place I experience God, uh, even when it's in interaction with other pastors or other communities or traveling or things like that. It is a privilege to get to be a part of the way that God is showing up. Amen. <laughs> you can find out more about Abby's work with the Center for Faith and Justice online at xavier.edu cfj. Special thanks to the forward-thinking leaders of the Presbyterian Church USA who first launched this movement, and to the Presbyterian Mission Agency and leaders like you for your support. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Our producer is Martha Ames Sanders. You can visit our website, newchurchnewway.org. Catch you next time. Thank you.